the yeah I don't the, the know. Pope, I, I went out of the camps. I don't keep track of these guys <laughs> and their gowns and their <laughs> things I don't it's, it's so just we're not, not my... gonna start a spinoff podcast about popes I mean Pope I'm tracker. in if you really want to do it <laughs> Welcome to I'd Buy That for a Dollar, a podcast about inexpensive, common, and underappreciated records that are waiting to be rediscovered. I'm your host, Sean Hartman, retired cryptozoologist and honorary scientist at the Utility Muffin Research Kitchen. <laughs> the, the first of possibly several Zappa-related <laughs> fake titles. Among- I knew I couldn't be the only one. <laughs> Well, we are discussing the band that Zappa built, but we'll get more. We'll we'll talk about that later. I'm co-host Jeremy, and I'm working on a, kind of a new album, uh, Play Hybrid. It's going to be the, the sequel to Joe's Garage called Jeremy's Pole Barn. <laughs> <laughs> we could jam in Jeremy's Pole Barn. We didn't have no dope or LSD, but a couple quarts of... Fakies. <laughs> True. And a half pipe. I was going to say, how how explicit is your album going to be? Oh, like, they're not even... No. No. No, no explicit content? You're doing a, a PG homage to Frank Zappa? Yeah, for the kids. Nice. Kid, a kid's introduction to the work of Frank Zappa. <laughs> By Jeremy Ruggles. <laughs> Never thought we'd see the day, but here we are, people. Here we are. <laughs> oh, yes, and, and for our listeners, fakies are what Jeremy and I call non-alcoholic NA beers. Yeah, we're boring. We partied ourselves out. <laughs> yeah. That's how we party as we pod. Well, I'm co-host Peter Cook, and I'm just so excited that we get to talk about the notorious Catholic boy Warren Cucarulo. On this episode, kind of young, kind of wow. That's a Zappa reference. <laughs> okay. I don't actually listen to Zappa at all, so. Yeah. It's from the Joe's Garage album, even. Oh, good. <laughs> Not Jeremy's Garage. Yeah. Jeremy's Pole Barn. I don't oh, have a oh, garage. Oh, that's right. All right. Jeez. Uh, I got to get myself in order. And with us today on this very fun episode, we have our special guest, Luke Tandy. Hello, Luke. Hello. I'm Luke Tandy, and I'm the president of the North American chapter of Basio Bozos, an organization comprised of professional clowns with the last name Basio. Ooh. Seems relevant to this episode. I thought about that one for like two weeks. That's good, though. (laughs) It's well-crafted. It's images to mind immediately. Do Do your clowns get paid more if they also have musical abilities? If they're, yes, if they're virtuosic, like the members of Missing Persons, definitely. Yeah, definitely. Time and a half if they can shred. Yes. (laughs) Missing Persons, is that who we're here to talk about today, Luke? Yes, Missing Persons, uh, the album Spring Session M, a underrated new wave classic. 
Awesome. And let's give the audience a taste before we get into it too much. What song would you like to start with? We're going to start off with Tears. All right. Not Tears Are Not Enough by ABC. Just Tears. Just Tears. Just Tears. Side B, track one. Yeah, that track is a good example of something that was on my mind when listening to this album. The little bit that I was familiar of this group prior to this, you know, learning that this was going to be our selection for this episode, I thought of them as a new wave band, which typically new wave was the more commercial punk, but not a little cleaner in production and songwriting, but not necessarily the type of music, the genre where you expect the players to be virtuosos on their instruments and as you instantly hear in that song with the drumming all the other playing like these players can rip and it really surprised me until i looked into the background of the players which we've kind of already alluded to a little bit but they clearly Mm -hmm. had a background which required them to be top-notch players before this group Mm -hmm. so that definitely struck me right out the gate with this record yeah yeah the drumming especially jumped out to me on my first listen through i realized there was one track that i had heard before but the rest of it was all new to me and the drumming is just bonkers but as you mentioned they're all incredible players and yet if you're not listening deeply to it it's still just catchy fun music like if you have this on in the background you could go through the whole album without thinking like, wow, they're 
they're shredding, you know, like it doesn't distract from the quality of being a simple, catchy pop song. Yeah, it's sort of um, a perfect storm of musicians and the producer and, you know, these people have these very um, eclectic background musical backgrounds they come from the jazz world uh you know and they're obviously the connections with uh, zappa all the band members are all connected to zappa they pretty much all met from the joe's garage sessions from what i understand and yeah they made a record that's super catchy and accessible and really well made but it doesn't sound like they're showboating yeah it's a, a very balanced effort i would say Especially after listening to this, I kind of got hooked and went into their whole discography and listened to some of their solo albums afterwards. And I feel like this album like really captured a balance that almost none of the rest of it really does. Nothing comes close to this. Yeah, yeah. It really it balances the kind of interesting textures and more experimental shifty rhythms and things with like legit pop sensibilities and catchiness yeah well put together mm-hmm. and this album was 1982 correct yep that's right on Capitol records i feel like 1982 was just a, a peak year for early 80s <laughs> Music. There's so many great records that I feel like we've covered on the show from that period, right in there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, especially within like yeah, Boogie and Post Disco, like a lot of the records you guys have covered. 1982 seems to be the year for that type of music, and probably for like a lot of new wave and synth pop too from around this time. Mm-hmm. That time. And there was uh, two other Zappa affiliates who were creating a lot of that post-disco stuff. You got George Duke and Ian Underwood doing a lot of that synth in the boogie synth-funk world in the early 80s. The true, mm-hmm. the, finally, for those who don't have a the acquired taste for Zappa, you can point to other things as contributions he has made to music. <laughs> he is staring me down right now. <laughs> oh, that's right. You hate Zappa, don't you, Jeremy? I... It's not a hate. It's I've just never really got it. I, yeah. It just feels like kind of obnoxious to me. And I there's very rarely humor mixing into music, and I enjoy it. There are exceptions. I'm with you on that one. <laughs> yeah, there are some exceptions. Peter's even got me to enjoy some Ween songs. Never shockingly. thought. <laughs> never thought that would happen. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> they're great. So. It's, uh, yeah, not my thing. I mean, there are plenty of Zappa fans, myself included, that really only listen to the instrumental stuff. So yep. He's best when he's not singing. <laughs> yes. Hot Rats. Uh. Yeah, Hot Rats, you just got the, the Beefheart, the one Beefheart vocal on there. It's a great album. Yeah, which is great. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> what inspired you to pick this album out of your entire collection of albums? Do we even cover that? Do we do we really say who you are? We didn't really. Uh, uh, give, yeah, tell you can no. tell you can say a little <laughs> bit more about yourself now if you'd like, Luke. <laughs> sure. Well, I'm actually um, what I do is I'm the owner of Skeleton Dust Records. It's a record store in Dayton, Ohio. So yeah, that's my day job when I'm not doing the uh, 
Bazio Bozo's club. <laughs> so well, what inspired you to pick this record out of all of the records I'm sure you're aware of? I this is one of my favorite records of all time. It's I it came through my shop probably a few years ago and I had never heard of it before and I put it on simply for the cover. It looks cool. It really catches your eye. Yeah, great cover. And yeah, and I listened to it and just fell in love with it and um it just really resonates with me for some reason and also it fits the criteria of being an affordable record still. And I was shocked, honestly, that it hadn't been covered on here yet. I was really excited that I had a chance to talk about it before someone else did. You leaped you leaped at the opportunity and you proposed it to us and I wasn't familiar and listened to it and was like, Whoa, this album in fact does slap. He's correct. <laughs> I don't think any of us are really very familiar with this band or album. Peter, did you have any previous experience with Missing Persons? Basically, with Missing Persons, I've known the song Destination Unknown for a long time. You know, it was it was a hit in its day, but that was I was two years old when this album came out, so I wasn't rocking this then. But poser, yeah. I know we're going to be featuring that song much later on in this episode, but uh, I'll say this now. In 1996, the Smashing Pumpkins covered that song when they released the B-sides, the, the I should say the singles with all the B-sides on them to their Melancholy and the Infinite Sadness album. They did that as a box set called The Aeroplane Flies High, and they added a bunch of new wave covers on there. They did The Cars, You're All I've Got Tonight, uh, The Cure, A Night Like This. And a couple others, including Destination Unknown by Missing Persons. So I've known the Smashing Pumpkins version for a long time. And, you know, in more recent years, I've heard Missing Persons version. Nice. So that's and that, that was about the extent of my background with them. Cool. Well, let's, I want to talk a little history and then we'll rip another track from them. But give you a little background on on this we kind of jumped into little bits here and there but let's go all the way back and this is a band the i would say the the original members the original founders would be terry bazio dale bazio and warren cucurolo warren cucurolo yeah that name just resonates in my head because of it being said in the Frank Zappa song, Catholic Girls. <laughs> That's why I knew his name so well. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And they were from all over the U.S. Terry was a Bay Area musician who got scooped up by Zappa in 1975. He was kind of a part of the Bay Area jazz scene. And Zappa heard him and was like, come on the road with me. Then... Dale was a drama theater person, aspiring actress, and got called up to be interviewed by Hugh Hefner to join like the Playboy Mansion in L.A. or something, and she turned that down and stayed in L.A., though, hoping to pursue a gig in acting when Zappa heard her and was like, hey, Come join my band. So he scoops up Dale, 
Terry's already there. Then we have Warren Cucarolo, who grew up in Brooklyn, New York, and was obsessed with Zappa. He would go to every Frank Zappa show he could get to. He started befriending people in the band, including Terry, and eventually got to play on stage because he memorized all of the guitar parts to all of Zappa's songs and convinced them to let him come on stage and play. And uh, Zappa was so blown away by the fact that he'd learned these really intricate, difficult parts and so many of them that he invited him to join the band. So then they're all in Zappa's band And Dale and Terry end up getting married while in Zappa's band in 1979. And in 1980, they get together with Warren and are like, we should make our own band. So they do that. And that's the birth of missing persons. They were missing from Zappa's band after that, right? And they were missing from (laughs) Zappa's band. Right. Yeah. And uh, just a little addendum to the Hugh Hefner Playboy connection with Dale. She worked at the Playboy Bunny Club in Boston. Uh, so I think that's how she was contacted by Hugh Hefner. And from, from what I understand, too, she had met Zappa when he was on the East Coast. And so I don't know if it was at a show or if he came to the Playboy Bunny Club and had met her. So, But they apparently hadn't knew each other already and then when she went to LA that's when she reconnected with him again thank you filling in some holes there there you go well let's jump to another song before we get further in their story what song would you like to feature next uh next we're gonna do a popular one this is one of the singles it's called words words side b track three written by warren cucarulo
Now I would like us to focus our collective attention on the voice of Dale. <laughs> yes, that is a good idea. We, we yeah we can now focus on that since we've gotten past the fact that these guys can jam. <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. But she's got such a wild like. What's that? There's a word I want. Flamboyant, you know. Singular. It's, uh, flamboyant. Yeah, idiosyncratic. That's the mm-hmm. word I think I want. I don't know. It's it's just like magnetic to me. It like pulls you right in. I find it very engaging. Yeah. It. Mm-hmm. It, it it's unique without being grating either. Like, yeah. <laughs> that's, that's important. Uh, unlike the. Uh, person who I mentioned covered one of their songs, Billy Corgan from Smashing Pumpkins. <laughs> that it, yeah, she. It, it definitely, something about her delivery really keeps it interesting throughout, too. It feels like she changes it up a lot. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for someone who was identified as probably more of a visual icon to a lot of people back in the day, you can tell that like she has this real star quality, even just in the vocal delivery. There's you said that uniqueness to it and it's it's very engaging it keeps you listening mm-hmm. yeah the little inflections that she does like um kind of like the little like sound effects she does with her voice almost like throughout the songs is really unique and something that i don't think you hear very much and it's just her and michael jackson yeah that's i was yeah. thinking i was thinking yeah. of mj too and when i first heard her i thought you know, this was like a really forced way of, of singing, like the way that she was making her voice sound. And then I hadn't really watched any interviews with her uh, up until recently when we were, uh, when I was researching for the podcast. And then I just realized that she has the thickest Boston accent ever. And which is what you're hearing in her singing is just a very thick Boston accent. Yeah. And she's, very Italian, I learned from the interviews. She digs the Pope and loves making pasta. and <laughs> Yeah, that's just who she is. Are those the two things that, in your mind, qualify someone as very Italian? Yes. <laughs> well, the good Italians. Oh, okay. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> he went there. Yeah, I haven't forgotten about Mussolini yet. Mm. <laughs> Yet. <laughs> yeah. Someday we'll all forget about Mussolini, but that day is not today. Alzheimer's comes for us all. <laughs> well, let's rejoin the timeline here. 1980, they just formed the band. The three of them. Oh, I wanted to mention also, I realize I forgot to mention this when talking about Warren Cucurolo and playing for Zappa. He was 17 when he did that. <laughs> Wow. Whoa. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, learning all of Zappa's guitar parts would be impressive for literally anyone, but 17, geez. Yeah. Yeah. So they get uh, together and they record in Frank Zappa's studio, which I did not write down the name of, but Sean used it in his title. (laughs) The Utility Muffin Research Kitchen. There it is. I looked at it and was like, Oh, that's some goofy Zappa stuff, and then didn't bother writing it down. <laughs> Zappa being Zappa again. <laughs> not Close worth the tab. <laughs> not worth mentioning the name <laughs> of. <laughs> but they recorded there an EP called Missing Persons, 
and they sold 7,000 copies of it, just DIY style, playing shows around LA, building up some buzz. And that led to them being signed by Capitol Records in 1982. And that's when they added officially to their lineup keyboardist Chuck Wild, who would go on to work with Zappa, but I believe hadn't yet before then. This is a gateway from or to Frank Zappa. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) And would also go on to work with Michael Jackson and Paul Abdul. (laughs) Nice. So big career in front of him. And then they also added bassist Patrick O'Hearn, who also came from the San Francisco jazz scene, like Terry Bazio, and then he was grabbed up by Zappa as well from that scene. So just mm-hmm. snatched right up into the clutches. Yeah. I think it's important to mention about these guys specifically in this band, just in re- in relation to how they sound as a band and who these people have worked with before. Just a short list with Patrick and Terry. They worked with Joe Henderson, Dexter Gordon, Woody Shaw, Charles Lloyd, Eddie Henderson. I mean, big jazz names. And so I think it's just, um, you probably don't really encounter that a whole lot. And, you know, I guess what I'm trying to get at is their diverse backgrounds that they have. And I think it's, you really hear that and how good the music is. Yeah, it's interesting too, because so much of the 70s music we talk about has jazz guys for the session musicians but in Mm. this like 80s new wave scene it's not something you see as much typically it is bands or you know newer different studio musicians you don't have jazz background people making this stuff well that's Mm -hmm. why it was you know level 42 who we talked about previously those were also jazz guys and that surprised me as well Mm -hmm. like a a new wave band with jazz background Mm mm-hmm I suppose that goes the same for uh, New Shoes to an extent. Weren't they also jazz background? Yeah. Well, I guess maybe it's more of a thing than we realized, or at least we're just like gravitating towards those records. (laughs) (laughs) Something in these grooves different from the other New Wave. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Well, to combine those grooves most artfully, they employed producer Ken Scott. Are you familiar with that name? Anyone? It does sound familiar, and I can't... It's big. Yeah. I'm trying to place it. Yeah, he was an engineer for the Beatles. Okay. And also David Bowie, Level 42, Devo. So he had his hands in some like really big, important records before uh, this record. And uh, apparently he became the group's manager after they... Uh, failed to find a suitable manager. He stepped in and became their manager too, on top of being their producer. Wow, he produced a lot of Bowie stuff, like Ziggy Stardust, Hunky mm-hmm. Dory, Aladdin Sane, all the classics. Dang. Yeah, he did stuff with Pink Floyd too. <laughs> and I guess he's kind of credited for championing j- like jazz rock and fusion. Uh, he worked with Mahavishnu Orchestra too. Mm-hmm. And so he seemed to play a big role in making that stuff really popular. Interesting. 
That's funny. I feel like, you know, when you, I hear people producing Bowie, it's usually Tony Visconti that people talk about. Mm-hmm. Or, and we, we're here to hype Ken Scott. <laughs> <laughs> the most underappreciated Bowie producer. <laughs> well, this is their debut album, if we didn't make that clear yet. Spring Session M, which is an anagram of missing persons and this record was certified gold it peaked at number 17 on the billboard charts and also ended up being uh they made some music videos that were pretty big in early mtv yes this is right at the beginning of mtv yeah and as you mentioned, Dale has that like star quality and she had all these crazy outfits and makeup and stuff she would do. And yeah, they, they had a look and MTV dug it. Mm-hmm. Apparently Dale uh, made a lot of her clothes too. The, there's kind of an iconic uh, plexiglass bra that you see her in a lot of photos and live footage. And uh, she made that apparently herself. And may has made like a bubble wrap uh, tuxedo that she wears too. So pretty neat that she was making her own outfits as well. Yeah, I saw in doing research that a lot of internet people have tried to link her or link Lady Gaga to her from like mm-hmm. a stylistic point of view, and they have like these pictures of them wearing like similar outfits. And Dale didn't help by putting out an album called The Original Lady Gaga in <laughs> 2007. Wow. I feel like Lady uh, Gaga is always the target of those who came before her and probably inspired her. Madonna, well, I know that when Madonna would perform Express Yourself, she would sometimes just segue it into Born This Way by Lady Gaga, which sounds very similar. If it, it felt it didn't feel so much as like a tribute, it felt more like hey, a call out, yeah, a call out, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, this record was pretty big, which is why you'll be able to find it out there in the bins, hopefully. And led into their second album, 1984's Rhyme and Reason, which uh was kind of a commercial flop. And a lot of people said it was an experimental record. And I would say it's more experimental than this, but it's mm-hmm. still like a new wave pop record. I was, I expected it to be like zanier, I guess, having them all come mm-hmm. from Zappa land. <laughs> yeah. I think when people <laughs> say it's more experimental, uh, just mean that the songwriting is not as good as Spring Session M <laughs> and the songs aren't as catchy. Really? In yeah. my opinion, anyway. I actually just bought a copy of Rhyme and Reason yesterday. Kind of, I, you know, I'm a Spring Session M purist, I guess, when it comes to missing persons. And so I never saw a need to own any of the other albums based on what I've heard. But I saw it in the bin and I was like, all right, I'm going to get it for the sake of the podcast so I can just listen to it and compare it to Spring Session M. And, there's a couple of good songs on there, but 
massive difference in quality between that and Spring Session M. Yeah, there were a few songs I liked in there, but this is kind of where it, it got me thinking about like the balance and how good it is on this album is that Rhyme and Reason gets like they're trying to be headier and more experimental and that didn't work. So in 1986, they followed it up with Color in Your Life, which kind of turned the balance the other direction too far, in my opinion, where it was just very poppy and they kind of smoothed mm. off all the like interesting edges to it. I don't know. Have you heard that one yet? I, I maybe I've heard that one. I did not do any research for on it for the podcast. Uh, it's fine, you know, <laughs> unless you're a missing persons like head, like you're into all yeah. of it. It sounds like they've um, had the the same trajectory as Weezer, the blue album. Good, you know, balance of. You know, the the distorted post-grunge pop stuff and then Pinkerton's mm, even more raw mm. and kind of experimental but didn't sell very well. And so then they came back with the Green Album, which is just kind of bland, uninspired pop songs. Yeah. <laughs> You're not wrong, I guess. Mm-hmm. It's just mm-hmm. classic Peter to put it into the, the Weezer frame. <laughs> how long were how long were you waiting to drop that little nugget on us, Peter? <laughs> Only when I just heard about their trajectory just now. <laughs> it, it just seemed to echo that. But I was trying to think of a comparison. And, and surprise, yeah. Weezer's what the first thing that came to mind. I'm shocked. <laughs> <laughs> so Missing Persons lost Chuck Wild the keyboard well they didn't lose him. He left the band. Uh, before 1986's Color in Your Life. So they were down a synth player, and there's kind of like almost a hair metal element that comes in that's filling in a lot of the like synth areas in the mixes. So I don't know. That one didn't grab me as much. Mm -hmm. But it did make it to 86 on the Billboard chart and kind of start to bring them back into you know, mainstream success. Just like Weezer in Just, the Green Album. Yes. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Unlike My God, Weezer. It goes deeper than we thought. <laughs> Unlike Weezer, though, during this tour, Terry and Dale's marriage began to fall apart, and that resulted in the tour ending and the band ending. That was it. And that was it. Three albums. And then they came back and did some surprisingly straightforward covers with Weird Al. Kind of resurrected their career a little bit, right? No. Oh, damn. <laughs> <laughs> no, not on that Weezer path. No Toto covers okay. with Weird Al in the video. <laughs> yeah. That's right. yeah, that's where, that's where it ends. All right, we tried. <laughs> well, Dale did do uh, an album of covers in 2020, so. <laughs> okay, was Weird Al No Weird it? Al involved, though. <laughs> Damn. <laughs> so let's let's jump to another song before we kind of we'll kind of tie the ends on the rest of the band after Missing Persons, but that's kind of their whole story as a band. Which song would you like to play next? Next, uh, we're gonna play a little bit of a deeper cut. It ain't none of y'all business, as Dale would say. Side A, track three. 
One thing I've noticed throughout this record that's kind of interesting is a lot of the guitar parts are surprisingly chunky and distorted, almost like metal distortion, but they're they're mixed in so tastefully that you almost don't even notice. It's an interesting element. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's a few that are borderline like fuzzy guitars. Yeah. But like every time it's about to get into like a hard riff, it just kind of moves into quirky new wave territory. Yeah, I mean, it's heavy music. You know, the re- it's a heavy record, and one thing I really like about it a lot is the the consistency of sound of this record. It doesn't really veer too far from the formula, I guess. You know, it just it hits hard all the way through, I guess, um, because of like the way it sounds and the way they wrote the songs, and specifically with uh, Warren, the guitar player, he has like kind of a reputation for. A lot of experimentation in his music and he was with uh duran duran from 86 to 2001 and so i think that kind of gave him an opportunity to get kind of wild with what he was doing with guitar yeah the notorious in my fake title at the beginning was a reference to warren's time with duran duran mm-hmm. of course it was <laughs> you knew all clever along. boy <laughs> yeah i would say for a complete album listen, it's not like a journey or a concept album, you know, it doesn't take you on this huge range of emotions and textures, but it is a very tight and consistent record. It doesn't drag in the middle like so many do, and it remains interesting all the way through. Mm-hmm. No lame ballads. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that helps this album a lot. Yeah, the downfall of many 80s records. Yeah. Yeah, I'd say it was, it's consistent similar to uh the one one we did very early on the human league's dare Mm -hmm. but a little more you know that that's veers more into the uh electronic and and the new wave and this is yeah a little harder rock yeah driving Mm -hmm. it's interesting though you know we talked about the jazz connection with this band but another thing i noticed about it was the connection with some of these members with the world of ambient music specifically chuck wilde and patrick o'hearn who both have made a lot of ambient music on their own patrick did records on private music uh, which is sort of a ambient or what i like to call elevator jazz record label yeah it's like similar to windham hill Yeah, exactly. Which was, uh, I guess, founded by Peter Bauman of Tangerine Dream. I did not know that. Oh, interesting. Interesting. And and then uh, Chuck Wild, when he left the band, then he started doing solo work under the project called Liquid Mind, which is a long-running ambient project he's had since 1994, and he's still releasing records. The approach he takes with it is interesting because... It's definitely a therapy, it's uh, music therapy, which is very apparent. If you go to his website for Liquid Mind, you'll see that it says music for sleep, relaxation, and meditation. And it's self-described as slow music, mm. which is a really interesting way of describing yeah. what he does. <laughs> and uh, I was looking through the albums on there and, you know, they have albums for calming your mind, uh, relaxation, reducing anxiety. And they even have, uh, he's made an album for pets, uh, reducing 
pet anxiety, I guess. That's great. Sounds like he, he went from new wave to new age. Absolutely. Yeah. Like deep in it. <laughs> the real pipeline. Yeah, it reminds me a lot of uh, Stephen Halpern, who we did mm-hmm. an episode on early on. Yeah. yeah. So many of those like new age guys, it's all it's like music for a specific thing. Music to give you focus, achieve flow state, sleep better, meditate. Mm-hmm. And that really makes sense with the trajectory of the band as well, not having Chuck Wild on that last album. To me, that's it, it lacks the textures, and that would make sense mm-hmm. from somebody who's in the ambient world and clearly really values textures in music. <laughs> He's the texture guy. He's the mm-hmm. texture guy. <laughs> well, also... As you mentioned, Warren joined a little outfit called Duran Duran after this band. So he did all right for himself from there. Uh, Dale went on to record a solo album for Prince's Paisley Park Records. and Interesting. Yeah. I'm somehow not at all surprised that Prince was connected to this. <laughs> yeah, it's like right in that vein. And it's not bad. That her first solo mm-hmm. record there. And then she didn't put anything out for quite a while until 2007. It, I did find that she, she was remarried and had two children. So that might have coincided with stepping back from music. Or maybe it doesn't. I don't know. <laughs> I remember that... Um reunited missing persons was supposed to play club soda in Kalamazoo in like 2001 or 2002. And I didn't go to the show, but from what I heard, they were actually missing persons. Like they did not show up. Yeah. So (laughs) in 2001, uh, Warren and Dale were talking and they reached out to Terry like, Hey, let's do a reunion. And that lasted through all of three shows until Terry quit again, and he uh, cited similar issues to why they broke up the first time and said that there was a weirdness between him and Dale that he didn't want to do the reunion. So that blew up pretty quick, and Warren actually joined her a year later and made it through three shows again before Warren left. Three albums, three shows. <laughs> yeah. Three is the magic number. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and then Dale started just touring as missing persons with and just a different backing band from there. And Terry, before very briefly joining back up with missing persons, became a session drummer working with Mick Jagger, Jeff Beck, Herbie Hancock, and eventually, Korn. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, yeah. I was so happy to see that. Yeah, that was news to me as well, Jeremy, finding that out. And even more funny, I didn't even, I wasn't aware of that Korn album. I saw the cover, (laughs) and I genuinely did not know that existed. Yeah, I think it said it was their eighth album, which I knew of about four. <laughs> yeah, I, I mm-hmm. think uh, most people's corn knowledge drops off considerably after "Follow the Leader." If yeah, maybe mm-hmm. the one that's where mine falls off. I, they maybe there's one after that that was pretty. 
pretty big. We're not we're not yeah. going to get into corn right now. <laughs> yeah. Well, uh, side note about Terry too that I want to mention going back a little bit is apparently he had auditioned for Thin Lizzy in the late 70s and did not make it into the band, which is pretty interesting uh, considering his technical abilities as a drummer. I mean, he can basically play anything, but they did not think he was good enough to be in Thiz- Thin Lizzy. So... That, that's like uh, when Les Claypool auditioned for Metallica, and it was just like, whoa, this, that, you got your own. It could be like that. You got your own thing going on here. I don't know if this is going to fit. <laughs> yeah. yeah. It, you don't really jive. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's probably more of a feel thing, or maybe even just like a personal, like, yeah. just not mesh mm-hmm. well. Because I, I don't think Thin Lizzy needs that talented of a drummer. Yeah. That's uh, not yeah. Really the star of the show. But missing persons didn't either, and it worked out for them. So true. Who knows? But that also uh, was a marriage holding <laughs> that band. <laughs> Very true. Yeah. So that that pretty much ties up all the loose ends. Dill's been putting out solo albums again since 2007, and as I mentioned before, most recently in 2020 with an album of primarily covers. Well, I think that, uh, yeah, I think we've covered the missing persons story. Sean, do you have Peter. any? Yeah, I, I call do, upon do you. Have you. A, a question for me? I can't possibly imagine what it could be. Uh, Racking my brains, what question is it? Did I give you back that uh, Ramsey Lewis album that you loaned me? Uh, I, th- I think you did. I did. Okay. All right, good. I think we're done here. Oh, wait, no, no, All no. Right, cool. oh, hold on. Do you have any recommended similar albums? Two, this missing persons LP. You know what? I do. Okay. So you've listened to the missing persons and you want to find similar bands, possibly ones in the dollar bin. If your favorite elements of this record were the quirky, positive new wave vibes and the weird vocals, and you thought, man, if only the vocals were more grating and this band was twice as happy, then you should listen to Altered Images, Pinky Blue from 1982. <laughs> All right. And if you're someone who liked the experimental elements of this and wanted it to get weirder and also probably more quirky still, you should listen to Godly and Cream, Snack Attack, a.k.a. Ismism from 1981. Ugh. <laughs> I hate that cover so much. Of the burger? I can't yeah. understand what there is to dislike about it. Well, someday we'll talk more about it because we'll probably cover that no. album. No. <laughs> Been threatening for a long time. It's bound to happen. <laughs> and finally, if you're someone that just liked this record for everything it is and wanted something as similar as possible to it, I would recommend Tony Basil, Word of Mouth from 1981. Previously. As featured on season one of this podcast. With guest Eric Nervous. True. Can you guys think of other records we've covered before that have similar elements? Uh, Cindy Lauper. A little okay. bit. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah. Definitely. I was thinking Nona Hendrix, especially for the hard rock. Oh, going yeah, on yeah, yeah. That's a good one. Yeah. And then the other one I thought that's maybe more of a stretch, but there's some similarities. The material record, One Down, that we covered. Oh, yeah, that is a lot of production similarity, I would say. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. This is not one that you guys have covered before, but uh, 
if you're looking for something with a very magnetic uh, vocalist uh, that's a really good songwriting is the Stacy Q Two of Hearts single, which can definitely be found in Dollar Bins, and it's an amazing song, more like high energy than new wave or synth pop, but uh, great stuff. That's a classic song. Mm-hmm. It's all. That's also one that I first knew as just like the title, the chorus title because it would appear in those like compilation commercials where you know like oh all your favorite hit songs here on one collection and it would two of hearts as the as the titles are like scrolling up across the screen yeah mm-hmm. yeah title. yeah Perfect. seriously addictive song i try not to play it in every dj set that i do but it's it's hard to resist Oh, you, you try not to, but it, it just happens. <laughs> it just finds its way on the turn. Yeah, it does. It's It sneaks but, in, yeah. That's, that's how I feel about Throbbing Gristle Hamburger Lady. Every set. Which is why I will never hire you, Peter. <laughs> <laughs> just kidding. You can't bring that record if I hire you. Don't worry, I don't actually have it. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I just tried to think of something that would kill the vibe. <laughs> <laughs> That'll do it. <laughs> yeah. I'll uh, I'll loan you my copy of AIDS Wolf doing a cover of that song. Oh, good. Oh, I, I thought it was uh, very friendly that they covered. Shoot, you're right. Cut that out. Never mind. No, keep it. <laughs> I, can't, I can't be getting my AIDS Wolf facts wrong <laughs> on this episode. That's deep knowledge. <laughs> <laughs> well... Uh, Enough missing persons and AIDS wolf and all that other stuff. <laughs> um, Luke, uh, do you you know do you have anything that you'd like to plug while you're here with us on this episode of I'd Buy That for a Dollar? Um, I uh, just would encourage people to check out SkeletonDustRecords.com, where you'll find links to social media accounts and our Discogs page and all that stuff, and. That is all I have to plug, really. If you're in Dayton, Ohio, don't miss Skeleton Dust. Also, you know, I, I listen to the best show. Tom Sharpling likes to do this to callers when they say where they're from. All right, Luke, best band from Dayton, Ohio. Mm. Uh, Stone Cold White. All right, you didn't say any of the obvious ones. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not going to. <laughs> Wait, who are the obvious ones? I don't even know. Do you remember when we did a whole episode about Dayton funk groups well yeah the funk ones but guided by voices the breeders brainiac oh those are all the ones that but yeah there's plenty of Dayton funk as we've established mm-hmm. yeah Dayton's the best Dayton band Dayton oh yeah yep all right well <laughs> what is that's a that's a lesser known boogie funk group not, for anyone that's not gonna interested. be appearing on this podcast I don't think no, it, I mean, it's not like crazy expensive, but it's just outside of our range. But uh, if you find a Dayton record out there, grab it. It's really good. Yep, they're always good. Yep. All right. Well, what are we going out on? We're going out on the, the big one, right? Destination Unknown. Is that what we had planned? That is what we had planned. It's my personal favorite song on the record. Probably uh, one of the leading singles, I would think. And yeah, it's just a perfect way of ending the show i think yeah something that i noticed in listening closer to this song and i I don't know what the exact if there is an exact musical term for this but it, it 
seemed to me like the music, the way the song is constructed, really reflects the lyrics because things don't happen quite when you would expect them to. Like everything feels like it's slightly shifty and off mm -hmm. from where things should land. You know, and the whole the song is all about not knowing where we're going in life. And I almost felt like it was like a musical onomatopoeia. Like it, the music sounds like what it's reflecting. Yeah, absolutely. Apparently, this song was inspired by an incident that Dale had in L.A. in 1976. She apparently fell out of a Holiday Inn window, which inspired her to write this song. And which she references that in the music video for this. Uh, she falls out of a car in the music video. So there's some, there's that connection with this song. Wow. Yeah. Life is so strange. I would not have expected that specifically to be the inspiration for this, but it makes sense, I suppose. Yeah. All right. Well, Luke, we can't thank you enough for uh, bringing this record to us and spending some time chatting missing persons thanks for having me uh it's been an honor to be on here to chat about one of my favorite records of all time so i really appreciate you guys uh indulging me and i love the podcast and keep it up thank you will do come back anytime i'll take you up on that all right well i'm co-host jeremy and i'm co-host peter i'm co-host sean and I'm Luke. Good night and farewell. Or good morning. Yeah, whenever you're listening, dear listener. <laughs> Life is so strange When you don't know How can you take Where you